According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is our third class now in the Great Commission. Or as I'm renaming it, the Disciple Maker Imperative. The Disciple Maker Imperative. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is what everybody zooms in on. There's much more to it than 19 and 20. I mean, at the very least, you ought to include 18, 19 and 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why does that get overlooked? The disciple maker imperative is an application of the authority of Jesus Christ. And we are his agents as we obey the disciple maker imperative. And we're going to describe for that, uh, that here in a moment. Not only are we his agents, we're also his vehicles. Because he's with us doing this in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That gets cut off. It's like it's not even in there. People don't even think about it. They just say, okay, go and make disciples. There, there's the Great Commission. And if they make it as far as baptizing them and teaching them, usually they don't. But if they do make it that far, that's where they stop baptizing them and teaching them and then a lot of times at least when i've heard it i've heard people say teaching them and they don't finish the rest of that verse teaching them what to observe to keep to guard all that i have given you and are all that i have commanded you what's the new commandment all right the uh, great commission is not what a lot of people think it is the great commission is uh just you know be a missionary somewhere and get a bunch of people saved. No, 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 no. Breaking my heart. It's bigger than that. And so uh, maybe if I retitle it the uh, disciple maker imperative, then we will have the full scope of what is expected of us as agents of Jesus Christ. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do we know what our age is? When will our age end? What are the upcoming ages? And uh, are we clear on what the unique age is that we operate in with heavenly and earthly reality? And so there we are. All right, before we begin, let's open the word of prayer. Ask the Father to set aside distractions. Ask the Father to bless our time together, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege that we have to assemble together. Father, uh, 89,000 people did not wake up this morning. That's how many on average die in their sleep every night, Father, in our country. But um, we did. You let us wake up this morning. You gave us a new day. Here we are. We want to redeem it for the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to learn what you have to teach us. Father, teaching and learning are different activities. So while you teach, Father, might we be actively learning. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Some of that was a spillover from our training this morning, and uh, it'll probably come out again as we, as we work our way through and define what a disciple actually is. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner, and we're going to uh, understand that. All right. Uh, the setting for this is a mountain in Galilee. Point one, a mountain for, in Galilee is the location for this event. And uh, we have the geography for this in uh, verse 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Traditionally, it's identified as Mount Tabor. Whether it was or not, we don't know. Uh, but put it on the map for you. I'll let you look at it uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, fine. If it was, it was. If it wasn't, we don't know any different. 
uh, whatever it was, the disciples knew what it was. And they got there as they were instructed to get there. And when they saw him, they worshipped and they doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped and they wavered. They worshipped and they wavered. Try to keep the same they consistent throughout the verse. Alright, don't try to shift it. Don't try to say, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. Don't try to change the they to a some. Okay, just scratch the some out of there. It's they. They saw him. They went, they saw, they worshipped, they wavered. Okay, you can keep them all as W's that way. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. And the aspect of wavering is what we were dealing with a week ago and the, the fear that can come in as we start to second guess, as we start to second think. And is there a place for that? Yes. But when that overwhelms us, we have a problem. There's a provision for that and we dealt with that a week ago. All right, they went, they, they worshipped, they wavered. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, three members, three persons of Trinity, right? Three members of Trinity, three persons, one name. Critical we understand that. We're not tritheists, we're monotheists. There's one God with one name, and that name is the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's got scads of other names too. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Tzedkinu. We've got tons of names for God. Um, in any event, but three persons, three persons make up the Godhead, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So a mountain in Galilee is the location for this event. Uh, they had been instructed to meet him in Galilee as they were walking to the garden. That would have been on Thursday night before uh, his arrest, before his crucifixion. After the resurrection, the women at the tomb were instructed to remind them about their Galilean appointment, right? Because if, uh, if, if a man, if he needs a woman to remind him or he's going to forget all about that appointment, we know how that works. So the men were told about the appointment, but the women reminded them. Point C, seeing him, the eleven worshipped and wavered. They worshipped and wavered. And it's not some of them, it's all of them in this, uh, in this activity. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. The stanzo. Applications of that. Doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve God in the Christian way of life. Doubt can have no place. If, if we start to doubt, we're like Peter out there walking on the water. All right? And that's the other place where this distazo verb takes place. Distazo appears here in Matthew 26, 17 and it appears in Matthew 14, 31 when Peter's out there walking on the water. And he began to doubt. Okay, and doubt, this is not lack of faith, it's not opistos, it's not opisteo, anything related to faith. It's distazo, and it's just a second thought, is all it is. A second thought. And we start to have second thoughts. And you'll notice it's, it's going to happen. Uh, it's a moment for you to just take that gut check and draw nearer to the Lord, is what it is. Okay, it's, um, you know, that moment where there's no, there's no going back. And before you start knocking Peter there in Matthew 14, where where were the other 11 disciples? They never had second thoughts because they never had the first thought. They never got out of the boat. Okay, and that's the point. That's the point. Now, um, you can imagine, uh, even if you've been preparing for it for years and years, when the moment finally arrives, 
They come up on that mountain, they worship, and then they have that second thought. Is this really going to be it? Because he's going to ascend. He's going to ascend and we're going to be here. It's going to be the, the next phase of the plan of God is going to unfold and we're not going to have him with us. So you can imagine that moment of that second thought. And what does he do? He draws near to them. And he says, lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. There's provision for that second thought. So the answer is, uh, when we waver, the answer is to draw nearer. The answer is to draw nearer. Like the hymn, draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord. Draw me nearer. If I have that moment of waver, that moment of second guessing, that second thinking, then draw near and remove that second thinking. You don't need to think it through again. It's a faith conviction. If it's a faith conviction, you don't need a second thought. If it's a faith conviction, happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. You're, you're being led by him. He led you to do this. You're doing this. Don't worry about it. Results are in his hands. All right. Jesus drew, point two now, Jesus drew nearer to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. Jesus drew nearer to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. Or if you want to keep the traditional name, the, the Great Commission. All right? The Great Commission. Even though the adjective great doesn't appear in here anywhere and the word commission doesn't appear here anywhere. It's just known as the Great Commission. So there it is. All right. It's like the, his gospel is commonly known as the Gospel of Matthew. All right, I'm not going to I'm not going to single-handedly change that. <laughs> Ask me after class. All right, now you're going to go back to chapter one and verse one, aren't you? You're going to find I mean, where, where's the name Matthew in this? Where does it say Matthew to writing a gospel to? It's not in there. Okay, it's just the first gospel commonly assigned to. Matthew, the tax collector. Now, um, so I'm reading the Great Commission, commonly called the Great Commission, written by, in the Gospel, commonly referred to as Matthew. Okay. Now, in this, he bestows upon them the disciple-maker imperative. The disciple-maker imperative. And that's what I want to stress, because that's what we're commanded to do. The disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus Christ's by-present authority. And today I want to explain that. What am I talking about? The by-present authority. I teased it at the end of our session last week. You've been thinking about it? Praying about it? Wondering about it? Are you by-present in your activity? In your thinking? In your actions? You're supposed to be. How do you lay up your treasures in heaven if you're not by-present in your focus? By-present in your activity? You're still here on earth physically, but we're in heaven as we operate. All right? It's where we lay up our treasures in heaven. It's where we worship. It's where we serve. We have a by-present reality. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Two locations, by-present. That's what I mean when I'm talking by-present. In heaven and on earth. We operate in heaven and on earth. The church is in heaven and on earth. The body of Christ, the bulk of them, 20 centuries of them, are in heaven. They've already died. There's only the present generation that's now living on the earth here in the 21st century. So the, I, I think the majority of the bride is not even on earth anymore. When the dead in Christ rise first, that's most of us. And then those who are alive and remain, that's the, the final dregs, right? The final remnant, the last, as it were. Those that uh, will not know what it's like to be, dre- to be robed in the interim 
body and to have the resting fellowship with Jesus Christ that my mother has right now or any yeah the apostle Paul has had and all the other saints that have gone before the rapture generation will never know that all right so there's a by-present authority and that's the basis for this when you're operating under the disciple maker imperative in other words when you're out there making disciples you're doing so with the authority of Jesus Christ with all authority in heaven and on the earth and he's with you in that activity He is with you in the disciple-making activity. Okay? But it's still an imperative, and you're still commanded to go and do that. If you go and do that, He'll be with you. All right. Let's understand that the church stewardship operates via a by-present reality. The church stewardship. What do we do today in the body of Christ? We operate. You and I operate via a by-present reality. And maybe, I mean, no one here doubts that. We've, we've believed this we've, for years and years. Maybe we don't use this language. So if the language bothers you, then use whatever language you want. But grab a hold of the concept because your attention is supposed to be focused on the things above. Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You've been seated at the right hand of Christ. This is our positional reality. We should operate that way. We should think that way. We should be focused that way. We should be dwelling that way. Almost to the point that, oh yeah, I'm still on earth, aren't I? Okay, I do have a reality here. I, I should not forget to eat or sleep or put on clothes or, or you know, I, I've got I've to, I don't want to be like that guy in Iran that hasn't showered in 60 years. Okay, I want to, I still have to operate here on earth. But that should be my secondary focus as I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto me. I shouldn't worry about you know, what I'm going to eat or what I'm gonna, the clothing I'm going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? All right? This is the by-present reality that we have. And so we see it. Okay? I did not include Colossians 3.1 on that board. I should have. So add that yourself. Uh, Matthew 16, 19, Matthew 18, 18, John 20, 23, Revelation uh, 1 and 2, and etc. Let's look at these. Let's understand our by-present reality. Matthew 16, 19. All right, the first gospel commonly assigned to Matthew, chapter 16, verse 19. I really have no doubt that Matthew wrote this gospel, by the way. I'm just being goofy, yeah. I'll blame it on the antihistamines. Remember, January is antihistamine month. Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? When, the, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, his Mathetai, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say, you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? All right, we know what conventional wisdom says. We know what the people think. You know, what's the common opinion out there? What do you think? All right? And there's value in that. There's a, we do this a lot. Some people think I'm bashing uh, evangelical Christianity and whatever. I'm not, I'm not bashing. I'm just illustrating. And Jesus does this. What do they say? What do you say? All right? What do they say? What do you say? What do the scriptures say? When it comes to these common, uh, you know, light and fuzzy kind of, fluffy, fuzzy kind of things. What do you say? What do the scriptures say? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now there's a bi-present reality that was even starting to operate within the disciples of the Lamb. We're not into the church yet. It's still Old Testament, but the apostles of the Lamb were starting to learn from their Father, even as you and I do in the church age. So blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, or son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and upon this Petra, rock. Okay, it's a play on words, but we're switching genders. Very important. Peter is not the rock. You are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the church is future when Jesus and Peter are chit-chatting on this day. When those literal words were spoken, from Jesus' mouth to Peter's ear, when those words were spoken on that day, late in 32 AD, okay, the church is still a future existence. The church does not yet exist. He says, I will build my church. Not yet built. He also says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, future. Peter doesn't have them yet. And the you there is y'all. It's not just Peter by himself. It's not just Peter. It's the first pope to have these keys. It's not passed down to, you know, Pope Benedict or whatever his name. No, Benedict retired, the, the new pope. Um, Assisi. No, Francis. Pope Francis. Okay. Pope Francis doesn't have the keys any more than you do, any more than I do. I, I hope he's regenerate. I doubt that he is. Okay? My conviction is that there are believers in the Roman church. Don't get me wrong. There are regenerate, born-again, saved individuals in the Roman church. But I don't believe the adversary allows them to reach high ranks. He knows those that are his. All right, that's just my my thought. Um, Now, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the verb tenses. Whatever you, present tense, bind on earth, shall have been, perfect tense, shall have been bound in heaven. Here's the by-present reality. There's earthly activity, there's heavenly activity. And the earthly activity in the present tense is a reflection of the heavenly activity in the perfect tense. Okay? And we're even switching from active to passive voice in this regard. So whatever you bind on earth, Peter and the apostles, pastors today in the local church, whatever you bind on earth, and binding and loosing is is judicial terminology, a judgment function. And it may be that in, in church discipline, it may be in shepherding, it may be in pastoral authority that, that the Lord's going to expect me to bind somebody or bind something, okay? Metaphor here, I'm not, I'm not handcuffing. <laughs> Those days are behind me. I'm not handcuffing anybody. But binding and loosing, it's putting somebody under a restriction, saying, you know what? Um, this is just a, an illustration, okay? I'm not doing it today, I'm not... Just envision that it could happen. That I might have to deal with a, maybe a man in training or somebody and say, you know what, um, I'm, I'm taking you off of the Sunday night rotation. All right, um, You're not going to be in the pulpit 
for a while. Okay, we've got to sort through some stuff. And in, in that metaphor then, if I say such a thing, if I have a, a disciplinary act or just a, just a shepherding act, um, I, I'm taking the man out of the pulpit, okay? We can say that he's bound, okay? We can say that he's bound in the metaphor. And then when he works through his doctrine and when he comes through and maybe his personal life, maybe puts a marriage on track or whatever, um, then I say, all right, you know what? He's now loosed. And you're going to be back on the back on the Sunday night rotation again, okay? Back in the pulpit again, all right? And I don't need to name names or illustrate or whatever, but this church has a history of that, okay? With a man that departed and a man that returned, and and uh, back in the pulpit again, okay? And he's loosed. Now, is that just an earthly activity? Here's the here's the point. Look back at this verse again. What you bind on earth. There's a heavenly reality to this. Not just an earthly reality. It's a by-present reality. What you bind on earth. What you loose on earth. Jesus doesn't say here, um, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and on this rock I will build my church, and you guys are just going to run it however you however all want to do it. Okay? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And He walks in the midst of every lampstand. He holds the stars in His right hand. And everything you do in the church, he tells Peter here, whether it's binding or loosing, I'm way ahead of you. I've already done it. And what you do is going to be a reflection of what I've already done. So when you bind a man, say, you're not a deacon anymore. You're not a Sunday school teacher anymore. You're not in the nursery anymore. You're not, uh, you know, when you bind a man or a woman, when you're just binding them, If you're following the biblical pattern, you're doing so under the leadership of Jesus Christ. Under the conviction that He has previously already done that. Okay? Now, again, the present tense, what you bind on earth, the perfect tense, shall have been bound in heaven. Been bound. Been bound. Passive. Okay? Perfect. That's the past completed action with the present ongoing results. Perfect passive activity in heaven. This is why um, we try to relate this in trying to encourage Kansas City and other other empty pulpits looking for a pastor. You know, is it up to you to to make your new pastor? Or do you think Jesus Christ has already assigned one to you? All right. How about if you seek the will of God in identifying the pastor he's already assigned? And then you can bind on earth what shall have been bound in heaven. Or loose, whichever metaphor you want to use. Okay. Um, but bind them to that pulpit because Jesus Christ already bound them there. Or loose them, if you want to use that metaphor. Whichever. The point is, it doesn't matter which metaphor you use. The activity is a reflection. The activity is a reflection. And, and the same thing as well. When Jesus Christ fires a pastor, when Jesus Christ, like in Revelation, says, I will remove its lampstand from its place, I'm preaching the whole slide and haven't even turned to those verses yet. But Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, I will come and I will remove that lampstand unless you repent. He's talking to the angelos of the church of, of Ephesus. Okay? The angelos of the church of Smyrna. The angelos of the church of Thyatira. Jesus Christ fires that pastor long before the members ever start thinking, eh, that guy's got to go. Okay? Why are the members thinking that guy's got to go? 
Because Jesus Christ already tossed him. He's gone. He's already been bound in heaven. You understand the difference? And so here's the thing. And, and this is where I, I hope that fellow elders or deacons or members can relax when this sad day comes. Okay, For any church. I mean, it's a tragedy in any church when that comes. But the members and the elders and the deacons and, and the, the folks can, can rest in faith and they can know that they're not rebelling against God's authority. Some believers have a terrible conscience saying, well, if we remove the pastor, we're, 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 we're at war against him or we're, we're, uh, we're rebelling against his authority. How can we, how can we fire a pastor and, and not be subject to, to authority? Well, you're subject to Christ's authority. And Christ has already removed him. And you're not in rebellion against his authority because he's no longer in that office over you. You're actually submitting to the authority of Christ by reflecting on earth what has already been bound in heaven. See how this works? This is, this is, this is, this is wonderful. And I love this. To me, um, you know, I, I think every pastor ought to teach the doctrine of how to, how to fire your pastor. And you say, well, isn't that kind of <laughs> <that> dangerous? <laughs> you taking a risk there? No. Because I want you to know how to fire me if I'm the guy that needs to be fired. If I'm the guy that Jesus Christ fires and removes out of here, then you better be equipped to do just that. So that you can then identify the new shepherd, the faithful shepherd that Jesus Christ puts in here after he gets me out of here. God forbid that it is me. But I'm not arrogant enough to say that I couldn't. Right? I think only a prideful, arrogant guy would say, well, I would never do that. I've seen too many pastors run off with, you know, stupid. Leave their wives, leave their kids, run off and do whatever. All right? So, anyway, enough on that. Back to the verb tenses. Always, you know, when in doubt, return to exegesis. (laughs) Let's talk present passive, you know, perfect passive participles or something. But it's not just binding, it's also loosing. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And, and, and the, the, the full range of this is taking complete and total opposites. Binding and loosing are complete and total opposites. Extremes. So that we understand that everything in between is also included, right? Maybe you're not going to do a total binding, you're just going to do you know, a partial binding. Well, is that what has been done in heaven? Be a reflection of what's been done in heaven. Everything we do is in the will of God, or it's supposed to be, if we identify that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Why did we move over here? That Jesus Christ told us to. And the binding and loosing decisions were already made in heaven before we reflected that in the will of God by sowing the old place and building this one. All right. Now, lest you think this is just a uh, Peter personal kind of thing, let's go over to chapter 18. And we find that it is uh, normative for the corporate uh, for the corporate um, application of Matthew 18, sometimes referred to as church discipline. Even though uh, the church doesn't begin till Acts chapter two, this is recorded in Matthew 18. It's corporate discipline that has a church application. It also has a uh, Israel application in uh, uh, the tribulation and in the millennium. 
is a corporate discipline. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he does not listen, take one or two more with you. Uh, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I don't have any problem with this being church, ecclesia. He already promised, I will build my church. He's already given a prophecy of the coming church. So he can, he can be speaking here prophetically with respect to the coming church, even though church is still a mystery. Truly I say to you, whatever y'all, not just speaking to Peter here individually, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, same language, Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Here's this earth and heaven dynamic. Do you see that? We're on earth. We're praying on earth. But who are we talking to? We're talking to our Father in heaven. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. We have a by-present reality. John 20, 23. By present reality. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now this is Sunday night, April 5th, 33 AD. In his first uh, upper room appearance, he popped into the upper room with the locked doors and windows. Scared him to death, said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now you can kind of think of this in a Great Commission context. It deals with being sent into the world. Okay. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any. Notice this is uh, present tense. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Notice that? Perfect tense. Passive voice. Now it doesn't add the expression in heaven, but I think we can understand that. I think in context we can understand that as being in heaven or on a universal basis in the the church universal. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained Again, present tense for the verb retain, perfect passive for the uh, been retained in the language of it there. Earthly activity is a reflection of the reality. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So again, we have a dynamic, a by-present reality. Colossians 3. It's not on the slide, but it should be. And Ephesians. Not on the slide, it should be. Right? Doesn't Ephesians say we're seated at the right hand of God? Even as He's seated at the right hand of, of uh, the Father? So, not on the slide, but you can write it down yourself. as Ephesians 2.6. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not just poetry, not just flowery language, not just a positional reality. Operate in that positional reality. So it's nice to know, it's a nice fact. Use it. Operate that way. Colossians 3. Therefore, since... It's an if, but it's a first class condition if. If you have been raised up with Christ, since you have been raised up with Christ, 
given that you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's not just a nice to know. There's a command that goes with it. The command that goes with it is make your focus there, make your attention there, operate with the by-present reality. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You've got a by-present reality. Your body is still here on earth, but that's not where your mind is to be set on. What is your mind set on? Where does your mind go to? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Every time we bring a person up out of the water in our baptism events, every time, Bring them up out of the water and we recite this as a congregation. I say this to them while we're standing side by side in the water, but the congregation up there in the grass looking looking at us, they recite it too, right along with us. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. It's your your great commission imperative. Not your disciple maker imperative, but it is your keep seeking imperative. It is a set your mind imperative. Okay? I think the set your mind imperative should go hand-in-hand with your disciple-maker imperative. Operate in the by-present reality. Okay, those are the extra verses. Now, Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. I'm sorry? John 20, 23? No, I got it. Yeah, yeah. That's in the upper room. If you retain the sins, if you forgive the sins of any, they will have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they will have been retained. All right, Revelation 1. Now here, again, is this mere poetry? Is this mere title? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Do you believe that? And do you believe that means something? Okay? I mean, I've worked in bureaucracies before. I mean, how, when you work in government, what, you know, county government or military... Um, you know, if, if you're ever in a bureaucracy, uh, there's, there's probably somebody there that has a title and you're not sure why. Okay. They have a title. They're a, a chief deputy assistant director of something policy. And they've got this title, but you're not sure exactly what they do. They don't seem to do anything. They just seem to sit there. They've got a desk. They've got an office. They've got a stapler. They sit there and you're not sure, but they've got a title, and they're sitting there, okay? And it's like that one comedy, you know, the guy got fired years ago, they don't even know he got fired, and he still shows up. Um, here's a title, and the problem is, Christians, they give Jesus the title head of the church, but they don't want him to do anything. They think he's just seated at the right hand of the Father, his feet propped up, making his feet a footstool, and they're just saying he's not doing anything. They're happy to give him lip service that he's head of the church, but they want that to be a title that doesn't do anything. Certainly don't get involved in my life, right? Leave me alone. I'm doing what I want to do. They got this attitude that Jesus is head of the church, and that means he's the absentee landlord. He's just gone. Yeah, the title's great, but don't think that he's involved, okay? And I'm telling you, that's fatal. It's not biblical. It's not New Testament. He is very involved as the head of the church. He's the one doing all these perfect passive verbs we see in heaven while we're doing these present active verbs on earth. Who do you think is binding and loosing while we're binding and loosing down here? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
And we see how active he is here in this chapter, in all these chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of Revelation. And you'll notice how active he is in this. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And and here's the voice that was speaking. Um, Verse 10, "I, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So he's pretty active. Jesus Christ is head of the church and he's delivering a message to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. All right, so where there's a message that has to go to a church, is Jesus involved or not involved? Is he just sitting in heaven with his feet propped up and letting pastors do whatever they want to do? <laughs> I think he's involved. I know he's involved. The pastor of Ephesus doesn't teach whatever he wants to teach. He teaches the message that the head of the church delivers. The vehicle through which is the Holy Spirit. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. Does the Holy Spirit teach what he wants to teach? No, he takes the things that are Christ and reveals them to us. Okay. So I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is a priestly garment. It's not a battle garment. He'll wear that in chapter 19. This is a priestly garment. The robe reaches all the way to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. I can't imagine what the chorus is going to sound like when we start singing up there. Okay? Nowadays, if we want harmony, we've got to get the four parts. We've got to get four different voices. Not there. You can do all four voices yourself and add a thousand to it. Like the sound of many waters. You can trumpet like a trumpet. You don't need the trumpet. You are the trumpet. His right hand, he held seven stars. Notice, in his right hand, he held seven stars. How many stars? Seven. How many lampstands? Seven. How many is that each? One per lampstand. So you might have a plurality of elders. There's only one star in that lampstand. Okay? Critical that we understand that. So when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the one who knew him better than anybody else. This is the one when he was in the boat said, hey, that's the Lord there on the beach. But here he sees Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession, standing in this glory and uh, it knocks him down. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys. Notice who has the keys? I thought Pope Peter had the keys. <laughs> okay, I thought uh, he passed those down to Linus and passed those down to Clement and passed those down to whatever. Down to Gregory and the whole chain of popes all the way down through all the way to Francis. No, 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 no. He still has them. He still has them. How can he have them and we have them at the same time? Well, how can the Father hand us to the Son and the Son holds on to us, but the Father is still holding to us at the same time? 
How does Jesus hand the apostles the keys, but he still holds the keys at the same time? All right? Holding these keys. Just as the Father and the Son are holding us. All right. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. That's our beautiful outline for the book of Revelation right there. Verse 19 gives you the whole outline. You can teach all of Revelation in that one verse. The things which you have seen, that's the vision of chapter 1. The things which are the church age in chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will take place after these things, the tribulation in chapters 4 and following. Now, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the angeloi, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One, one per. One per. How is the church going to operate? You know, it's interesting. When you have all of the ecclesiology through the epistles, you have all of the ecclesiology in the book of Acts, in the epistles, you got the structure of, of overseers and deacons in Philippians 1. You've got the structure of overseers and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. You've got elders in 1 Timothy 5 and countless other places, Acts chapter 20. You've got elders that are called overseers in 1 Peter chapter 5. You've got all of, the, all of the ecclesiology of the New Testament, all of which is written while the apostles are still here. And all of the ecclesiology while the apostles are still here is different than ecclesiology when the apostles are gone. You want to study the doctrine of ecclesiology when the apostles are gone, you go to Revelation 1 through 3. Because in Revelation 1 through 3, the apostles are gone. They're all dead except for the last living apostle who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And you've got seven churches here that are operating in the post-apostolic age of the local church. The church dispensation has an apostolic age and a post-apostolic age. And we operate in post-apostolic Christianity. And in post-apostolic Christianity, with no more apostles, you better understand pretty quickly what the lampstands and the stars are all about. The local churches and the angels. The local churches and the angels. Okay, What's an angel? An angel is a messenger with a heavenly message. Okay, That's what the pastor is. He's a messenger with a heavenly message. And there's one per church. There's one per church. And you'll notice, the first one of these uh, makes it pretty obvious. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus write. Now if you think these are spirit being angels like Gabriel... Think again, okay? Why would Jesus Christ dispatch an angel to deliver a message to John on Patmos to write a bunch of letters to a bunch of spirit being angels? That's ridiculous. To the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. So we have the involvement of the head of the church. He's involved by being aware. He's involved by watching. He's involved by praying. He's interceding. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. 
and you found them to be false. You put them to the test. We have this coming up in 2 Corinthians when Paul's telling the Corinthians to test themselves. They were they, they doubted Paul was saved. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you, think I'm, you don't think I'm saved? You better test yourselves. We'll deal with this here in that context. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Like an angel's going to grow weary. If, if he's writing to a spirit angel here, right? Like a, a guardian angel of a local church kind of thing. It's, what a dumb... And it breaks my heart when people hold some of these wrong views. Um, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. See, this Angelos he's writing to needs to repent. So what's he fa- talking to a fallen angel now? What is this? <laughs> okay, Is this a spirit being, really? In this case, he's fallen because he needs to repent. No, it's not a spirit being. It is a messenger with a heavenly message. But he's, he's human, all as the rest of everybody else in the flock is. I have this against you, pastor of Ephesus Bible Church. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove, notice now, your lampstand out of its place. It's a possession of the angel. It's your lampstand. It's your lampstand. Whose lampstand? The angel's lampstand. The star's lampstand. At which point the members say, well, wait a minute, don't we get a vote on that? This is our church too, you know. It is. Yes, it's your church. Sure, it's your church. It's no less your church because it's also my church. But when it comes to discipline, who's Jesus Christ going to fire? He's going to come and fire me. He's going to come and fire the angel of that church. And notice... He doesn't assemble a committee and he doesn't put it to a vote. (laughs) He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He doesn't say I'm going to file a motion in the next business meeting and try to get a two-thirds vote of the members. He said, I'm going to fire you. And this is what has been bound in heaven that will ideally be reflected on earth by a present tense binding after the fact. When Jesus Christ removes the pastor, the members better reflect that. See how this is working? A by-present reality. A by-present reality. When Jesus Christ assigns a shepherd to the flock, they better reflect that. And if if they're humble, they're going to hear the voice of their shepherd. John 10, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, my sheep hear my voice. And the shepherd's going to be humbled, he's going to identify, man, these are my sheep. Okay? And it's just just like this is my lampstand. The shepherd's going to know that, and the sheep are going to know that. If they're spiritually minded. If they have ears to hear. If they're earthly minded, if they're just browsing resumes and trying to evaluate, uh, they're negotiating for salary, they're doing all the other earthly stuff that that they might do. If they're sending agents in to try to steal away a a pastor from another church, you know, free agency, of course, in the pastoral marketplace. If they're approaching it like a business, woe be unto them. Because... Jesus Christ might well give them the, the ear tickler that they want. Okay? But if they're faithful, if they're hungry, 
He'll remove the, the false shepherd and give them his shepherd that will feed the flock. Could also throw Ezekiel 34 into this while we're at it, but be that as it may. Okay, now that that's just one church. I, I, I won't take the time or it would be, I mean, we could do it. You want to go through all seven of these? Go through all seven of these and notice the singular angels, the singular angelos that Jesus is talking to. Okay? He doesn't say, he said, look, you got this Jezebel woman. Right? He, he doesn't say go to a committee. He goes to the one guy and says, deal with this. Just like the Lord didn't go to Adam and Eve and say, where are the two of you? He went to Adam and said, where are you? Do you think that's significant? Jesus doesn't go to a pulpit committee. Jesus doesn't go to a a presbytery of elders. Ephesus had plural elders. We know that for a fact in Acts chapter 20. Paul called for the elders of the church. The elders came to him at Miletus. And the elders listened to Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 20. And he told those elders that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers, episkopoi. So they are presbuteroi, and they are episkopoi, plural, in Ephesus. Jesus doesn't address any of them except for one. Jesus addresses the one guy, the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. Okay? That one guy's got to deal with it. And he have fellow elders and fellow uh, overseers, and they're going to help him. But he's the one that's got to deal with it because he's the one held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. So, uh, same thing, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel of the church of Pergamum. You are tolerating some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, who are those guys? I think they're probably his fellow elders. They're probably his fellow overseers. Paul warned the elders of Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves, elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be on guard for yourselves. These teachers here that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, who are those guys? You also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, who are those guys? Probably fellow elders, fellow overseers in Ephesus. The ones that Paul said, be on guard against. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Among you, fellow elders. All right. Therefore, repent. Again, telling the angel of Pergamum to repent. It can't be an elect angel. It can't be a fallen angel. We're not talking about a spirit being in any of these contexts. So when we get the post-apostolic ecclesiology of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, we find that there is a right-hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ that is the messenger or the angel of every lampstand that Jesus Christ has planted on this earth. One per. Every lampstand has one angel, one right-hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And we have the pattern for it there. All right, well, there's more. Um, it's the pastor of uh, Laodicea that's lukewarm. Let's look at that last one because this one's good too. This one, they're all good. I mean, you, can, you get the principles in all of these. You get the heavenly reality in all of these. The, the by-present dynamic of what they're doing on earth and what's being done in heaven. 
And the head of the church is involved. He's not retired. He's not feet propped up in the recliner. And he, and he says, um, the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Pick one. Okay? Pick one. I can use one or the other. The meat should be hot. The, the drink should be cold. You don't want cold meat in a warm drink. Okay? If, if it's lukewarm in both circumstances, I'm going to vomit. Spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. The problem is, is he's all earthly. That's his earthly activity. He doesn't know the heavenly reality. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Earthly, he's rich, he's wealthy, he has need of nothing. Heavenly, he's wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He's not even dressed in heaven. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Where do I get that? Gold line? The William Devane commercials on TV? <laughs> do I got to, you know, listen to a Glenn Beck commercial? He's, he's got, uh, what's his gold? Uh, I forget. All these radio guys, they've got their gold sponsors. This is not earthly gold. This is heavenly gold. We're buying from Christ. Christ is the one we purchased this from. Are we engaged in heavenly commerce? We're supposed to be. It's not just stashing away treasures in heaven. Those are the deposits we make. We're also supposed to make purchases in heaven. We see it here. Are we partaking of that heavenly marketplace? Do we have commerce with the Lord, the apostle and high priest of our confession? I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and that I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The pastor in Laodicea probably the first one that's going to come under that discipline unless he repents unless he repents remember what's the whole point of corporate discipline repentance if he listens to you one-on-one game over he's repented you got your brother back if he listens to the two or three game over you got your brother back if he listens to the church game over you get your brother back okay telling it to the church isn't the automatic kick him out of here telling it to the church is the third and final repent if he doesn't listen to the church, then you remove him from, your, from your midst. Repent. All right. Be zealous and repent. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit is the agent through which the message of Jesus Christ is going to be delivered to the messenger and through the messenger to the local church. We operate via a by-present reality. Point C. The disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. The disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The disciple-maker imperative comes to a close at the end of the age. Not the ages, the age. 
conditional circumstances will be entirely different once his kingdom actually does come. Once his kingdom does come. In other words, there's no disciple-maker imperative in the millennium. Circumstances are going to be all different in the millennium. They will have no need for anyone to teach them, for they will all know me. The universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes in the millennium uh, is going to make the Great Commission or the disciple-maker imperative no longer necessary. Not like it is now. Not like it's going to be in the tribulation. Well, it's interesting. The tribulation is going to be a massive uh, evangelism crusade. But they uh, are they going to be under the Great Commission? Is Jesus with them when they're uh, when the hundred forty four thousand are are uh, fighting Antichrist and and um, serving in this world? He's not with them. He's coming. He's coming when they're serving. He's with us when we're serving. That's a big difference. Huge difference. You know, this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is huge. We need to understand that thy kingdom isn't here yet. We're ambassadors for the kingdom, but we're not, we're not conquering this kingdom. We're simply making disciples that are they're going to have that by-present reality we have. You're going to try to turn this place into heaven on earth? Give up on that. It's been tried before. Okay. What is Matthew 6, 10? I think I just said it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. In any event, it is a coming kingdom and circumstances will be different once it comes. Think about the by-present reality will now be monopresent. Because heaven will be on earth in terms of the reality of the king being on earth and the reality of us returning with him, all the things that take place. Uh, the, the Transfiguration Mount was a preview of that. You had the Lord, you had Moses and, and Elijah uh, you know, in resurrected glorified states and you had Peter, James, and John there and still in their mortality as believers in mortality. It's a foreshadowing of the coming millennium with uh, you know, a dynamic between the glorified and the mortal. Kind of interesting. The disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. As conditional circumstances, it will be entirely different once his kingdom actually comes. Remember, when the circumstantial, when the conditional circumstances are different, when the conditional circumstances are different, you're dealing with a different age. Okay? And maybe a different dispensation, but at least you're dealing with a different age. At the very least, it's a different age. Because the conditional circumstances are different. You're going from law to grace. You're going from grace to kingdom law. You're going from uh, whatever the conditional circumstances are, if they are that vastly different, you're dealing with a different age. The age of promise was different from the age of law. Both were stewardship of Israel, but there were different ages. The age of tribulation is different from the age of law. The age of the millennial reign is different still from the age of law. Different from the age of promise. 
They're all dispensation of Israel, but there's different ages. For the church, dispensation of the church. Apostolic age, post-apostolic age. The church is still the steward, but the conditional circumstances are entirely different. Be confused on that. You try to be Pentecostal or something. You try to be, you know, all kinds of apostolic. We're not apostolic. We're post-apostolic. Apostolic was foundation. We're structural. Gentiles, likewise. Age of innocence, age of conscience, age of human government. You've got different ages because you've got different conditional circumstances, but all within the dispensation of the Gentiles. Anyway, the disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. It's delivered by a resurrected, glorified, no longer kenosis-emptied Jesus Christ given to His apostles at the launching of the church age. Okay? The disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. It is a church age event. Like communion is a church age ritual. The disciple-maker imperative is a church age imperative. What we're trying to say there. Well, the imperative. Next week we'll come back and we're going to study the imperative itself. What is the imperative? Is it go? Is it baptize? Is it teach? It's make disciples. It's make disciples. When I look at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, I'm I'm out of time. I'm I'm a minute over. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. We have four things we think are verbs because the participles look like verbs. Go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Four of those. And then commanded you is also a verb, but that's flashback to what Jesus did to them. Go, uh, Go, baptize and teach. None of them are the imperative. You've got an aorist participle and two present participles. The aorist participle is different from the two present participles. The two present participles go hand in hand and they define the imperative. The imperative is make disciples. Okay? It's not go. So we'll spend time next week to break down the imperative. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the headship of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he's here right now. Father, we're assembled in his name. He's here in our midst. And Father, I thank you that he's here this morning for not for a judicial function, but for teaching function. And Father, as the teaching went forth, I pray that the learning also would be active. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.